The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Whenever I hear the praises of God sung in another language, Psalm 2 always comes to mind where God, speaking of the Messianic Son, says, Ask of me and I will give the nations to you as a heritage. And I don't know that anybody in Israel ever conceived of the language Mandarin, or knew there was a China. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But he meant the Chinese. He meant people from all the continents of of the world. I will give the nations to you. And it is a glorious thing to see that to get a little taste of it even here this morning. So I I praise God for that. I thank you for that. Can we turn the lights on? I can't see you all. Thank you. Pray with me. From Colossians 1, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We come into your presence, Father, Son, and Spirit, thankful that you are at work here in this world and that we see evidence of answering the the plea to give the nations to the Son. You are doing that moment by moment, every day. And people from every tongue and tribe and nation, today and will forever, Gather around your throne and give you worship. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for that reality, for the fact that it is coming about. And it comes about only because you have been pleased to put all of the fullness of God into Jesus, the man who walked the earth. All the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him, and you are pleased to do that, and you did it to accomplish the salvation of your people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Praise you for that. Thank you for that. You have decided, you have chosen to be present with us in Jesus. And this morning, Father, as we turn to a text that is going to lead us on to think about that, would you open our minds and help us to understand it? And and more than just intellectually understand it, help us to marvel at it to worship you for it, to be thankful for it. Most of all, Lord, what we need in our lives is you. We don't need you to help us with other things. We need you. And we cannot make that happen, but you have graciously been pleased to make your fullness dwell in Jesus and then give him to us. Bless your name. We know that, Lord, drive it home into our hearts and help us to love it, to give thanks for it, to to revel in it this morning. Give clarity to my words here this morning. Give clarity to our thinking here this morning and help us to understand this passage in its details and in its larger scope. That we would grow in appreciation of what you have done grow in worship of you, and particularly, Lord, grow in joy. Bring that to pass, I pray, for the honor of Christ and for the joy of your people. Amen.
This morning we give our attention to what God has for us in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And as we move into this chapter, we're, we're coming into a different section of the book of Deuteronomy. We've already passed through the sections that give the, the historical backdrop and the background of this book. And then in chapter 5, we, we pass through the section in which God gives us His people His, his very basic requirements in the Ten Commandments. And then the section of chapters 5 through 11, we're kind of unpacking some of those things and expressing them in a little bit different way. We could put over all of those sections the theme, No Other Gods Before Me. Those past chapters, God was just was relentless in, in lifting up this requirement of allegiance, uh, allegiance from us, His people. He persistently drove that point home, and also then also, very persistently, just persistently as he drove that point home, he threads into it grace. Constantly. He is, he is the best of all possible fathers, that he has incredible, relentless, high standards. And he is incredibly gracious and forgiving of those who trust him but fall short of those standards, and incredibly inclined to be helpful to his people to help them meet those standards. He doesn't bend on his standards, and he is full of grace. Both those things together. It is a marvelous God that we worship. We've seen that over the last several chapters. And then as we come to chapter 12 today, what we do is we, we turn the corner and move into really what is the bulk of the book. The, the statutes, the rules, the stipulations. It's the bulk of the book, but it's not the main point of the book. The, the pinnacle, if you think of it as a mountain, the, the pinnacle, the peak, is the Ten Commandments. And all the rest of it is kind of like the mountain mass beneath it. It all kind of flows out from it. But it's not the main point. The, the Ten Commandments are the peak. And we're going to have a long time looking at the mass of the mountain, all the stipulations and the commandments, the special cases, the common situations, etc. We'll begin that today. And appropriately, here in chapter 12, what God begins with is worship. Particularly, where to worship. We're going to look at. As we do so, my hope and my, my prayer for this morning has been that we as a people and that you individually would grow as worshipers for our joy, for your joy. We aren't, initially, we aren't worshipers just to feel good. We're, we're worshipers because He is worthy of being worshiped. All of life is about God. That's the only reason we even exist. It's for the glory of God, for God to be worshipped and exalted. And He is eminently the, eminently the one who is to be worshipped. So we must be concerned about growing as worshippers, about growing in our ability and consistency in lifting Him up. But we also have to recognize that that is for our joy. Because that's what we're made for. It's what our hearts were shaped for, to be worshipers of something worthy. Not of little stuff, but of something, someone worthy. We're made for that. And so it's worship for our joy. And my hope, my prayer is that we would grow in that. It is such, the, the joy part, it is such an essential characteristic of a Christian. You think about this. It's what you want. 
You want a life of joy. You don't want, think of, think of some, some things the world wants, you don't want gobs of money without joy. You don't want a great big house without joy. You don't want fabulous relationships that don't have any joy in them. What you really want is joy. And you chase them in all the other stuff. We want joy. We want hearts filled with overflowing with joy. And God wants that in us too because that only comes from Him. And so He's honored by that. And it is also what commends the Gospel. It is the primary thing that commends the Gospel. When people look at a Christian and say, there is joy there that I don't have. They don't look at a Christian and say, there's forgiveness there that I don't have, and they're really in a lousy mood about it. I want some of that. <laughs> the thing they detect is joy. It's what commends the gospel. It's what you want. It's what honors God. We must be concerned with joy. So my hope is that we would grow as worshipers for our joy. We're going to get after that. We're going to be working towards it. It's going to come up a little more towards the end of the sermon this morning. And we're going to look at it again next week as we sort of hang here in this chapter and use it as a launching point to go into some other things. So this week and next week we're, we're on worship. And particularly what I have in mind is, is joy. Which we want, which God wants in us, which other people want also. So let me read the text. Deuteronomy 12. The whole of the chapter. Beginning in verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice. You and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. You have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over, to, over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, 
your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you, The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And you may eat within your towns whenever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood. For the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. And you shall you shall not eat it that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you do not, that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy 12. For a number of chapters leading up to this point, we've been seeing this phrase, the statutes and the rules, the commandments, etc., that I command you. They've never really been spelled out, and now here we come to them. It's going to be listing some of them. Verse 1 says, here they are. Same thing as verse 32 at the very end. Here they are. Do what I command you. Be careful. And what's up first? Worship. And again, both at the end, at both ends, verses 2 to 4, particularly verse 4, and verses 29 to 31, notably verse 31, he says, do not worship in this way. These are the bookends of the passage making this point. All the peoples of the lands that you're going into, they have ways that they worship 
not that way. They worship in any and every place, in any and every way. Everything you can possibly conceive of, in every mountain, every hill, every green tree, everywhere that seems remotely special, they go there to worship. You can't do that. Do not go there. Some of what they even do is atrocious. Offering children as burnt offerings. See the, the degradation. Nobody starts off thinking that's a good idea, but you get around to that if you're trying to curry favor with some God and make some really costly sacrifice to invite Him to now look upon you as if you're serious. They've gotten to this point. The whole system, though, is wrong. In all the things they do, in all the places they do, stay away from all that. Just like back in chapter 7 where we saw this before, He wants to draw a, a really, really, really stark line. Cut down everything, tear up everything, burn it all, so that you may not be ensnared. It's a word that was used frequently before. It's not going to look very attractive to you at first, but what happens is that in a time when you're bored or in a time when God seems distant, you begin to think, I wonder if there's something else. You know, how do the people who used to live here do it? You take a step, and another step, another step, until you're ensnared. So to avoid all that, wipe it out. Do not seek after their gods. Instead, verse 5, you shall seek after the place where God will have you worship. And verse 5 is an important verse because it turns from what's prohibited to what's commanded. And it turns to the main theme of the chapter. You shall seek this place. The place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name. You shall seek it. Not not in a sense of there's like a hide and seek game where God has selected something and then says, see if you can find it. But seek it as in pursue it. As in go to it. The very end of the verse says, there you shall go. You're going to go there to this place. Now all those other places, this one. Go there, verse 6, with your offerings and worship. Worship there in that place, eating before the Lord enjoys, verse 7 talks about. This eating, why does he talk about eating? Well, these great gatherings of worship were feasts, and they went on often for about a week. And there would be much eating and feasting. And many of the sacrifices actually were were offered as a sacrifice and then turned around and and eaten, consumed by the people. This is a a covenant meal where the two parties in a covenant sit down, share table fellowship, indicating that we're okay with each other. We're not on on guard. We're, We're sitting down and sharing a meal, us and God. We go before Him and feast in joy, rejoicing before Him. Like verse 12 says, all of us do. All of our kids, all of our servants, the dependent Levites, we bring them along too. Everybody comes and we gather and we eat before Him in joy, comprehending the wide, full blessing of God on all the things that we undertake in life. And so verses 6 and 7, as well as 11 to 14, And 26 to 27 all make this point about worshiping, bringing up these various sacrifices to this place. And as you read through those sections, you realize 
all the offerings and the free will offerings and the tithes and the burnt offerings and the contributions and they're all kind of randomly assembled. Never, never spelled out. They're not all the same in all the different lists because he's assuming they've already heard this before. This is the second time he's gone through this. They already know a lot of the details. He's not concerned with the details right now. The, the issue is where. You can read about the details on the places in the law. You know about them. You're going to bring them somewhere. The issue here is the place. Now, how do you worship? Where do you worship? Come to this place. That's the issue. Verse 5 raises it. And then 11, 14, 18, 21, and 26 all contain this phrase, the place you will choose. The place he will choose. He's going to choose a place. Somewhere. A place to which they are to come. Don't go to every hill and mountain and grove of trees and all those other altars. The worship that God accepts is at His chosen place. He's going to pick one. Come there. There, verse 14, bring all of your burnt offerings and do what I command you. That's the issue of the chapter. But then as an aside, really, in verse 15, he says, however, you, you may slaughter animals at home. Having really heavily hit upon this place, and you have to bring the sacrifices to this place, and you offer them in this place, he wants to clarify something. It is indeed permissible to slaughter animals at home and eat them at home. Especially if it's too far for you to come and have the priest sacrifice it. You can do this yourself as long as it's not conceived of as worship. It's just dinner. Feel free then to eat dinner and enjoy the blessing of God on, on your lives. Don't, don't eat the blood. Pour it out as he spells out other places in the law. The life is in the blood. You can't eat the life with the, with the flesh. But you can eat the flesh. And please do. And he comes back to that again in verse 20. He wants to clear that up. That indeed it is permissible to slaughter animals and eat them at home. But you have to bring worship to the place He has chosen. That has to happen there. So where is that? Where is the chosen place? Well, there are hints, but He doesn't really say. It's somewhere among the tribes. Verses 5 to 14 and verse 21 implies that it might be kind of far away. It might be hard to walk there in a day. So he's got a little bit of a hint. And, and if you work through the implications of verses 8 to 11, you just read through verse 8, that a phrase there might sound familiar. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That should tie your mind into the book of Judges. Where there was a problem, there was no king there. If you work through some of the implications, you realize, when is it going to be that the people stop doing what is right in their own eyes? Well, when they have a king. And when is he going to give them rest from their enemies? As, as verse end of verse 10 says. Well, he, that phrase also is repeated in regards to, to King David. So you can get some more hints here that when is he going to pick a place? Well, after there's a king, after there's a Davidic king, then he's going to pick a place. And it's going to be somewhere among the tribes. It might be kind of far away. There are hints. But he never comes right out and says, where is that place? Probably because he doesn't know, right? I mean, he probably needed to go in there and, and check it out because you never buy a house before you drive around the neighborhood to see what it's like. That's probably why. 
course not. You look back at the end of the previous chapter when he spells out for them how to do the blessings and the curses ceremony. He gives them specific directions, even using a particular tree. Here's where you go. He understands all of the geography of Canaan. But still, despite the hints, he does not give a particular place. He doesn't cite it. He is deliberately obscure. Almost, boy, almost as if he is deliberately striving to create the opportunity for confusion. He knows where it is. He just won't say. Almost as if he's deliberately striving to create an opportunity for centuries later for there to be a, a Samaritan woman sitting at a well having a remarkably penetrating conversation with some random Jewish teacher. And it creates opportunity for her to say, okay, where's the place we're supposed to worship? Moses wasn't clear. Our fathers say that the place that we are to worship and come into the presence of God and offer our sacrifices and enjoy His presence is here on this mountain. You guys say it's over there in that city, Jerusalem. Which is it? Is it here on this mountain or is it there in Jerusalem? And the teacher then can respond, neither one. The place where acceptable worship from God to God is received, the place where He is present to meet with people, the place where human beings can know joy, the type of joy that quenches the thirst forever, is seated right here at this well with you. That's getting ahead of the story a little bit. The text doesn't quite go there yet. It just presses home to us this point of there will be a place chosen. Go there to worship. There you find joy. So let me try to summarize in, in a, a brief sentence this, this long chapter, and then I'll unpack this into two overarching observations. Here's my summary sentence for this morning. God has given His presence. God has given His presence. Seek it for your joy. God has given His presence. Seek it for your joy. Let me work on the first half of that. We're going to begin with this observation and unpacking the first part. Here's another sentence for you. Get a quick pencil. God has chosen to provide and to call us to His presence. My first observation. God has chosen to provide and to call us to His presence. The text repeatedly says that He's going to do this, starting in verse 5 and then throughout. Seek the Lord that we're in the place that He will choose. He's going to choose a place and He's going to put His name there. Which is to say... He's going to put himself there. Name is not just like title written on a wall. Name is presence, is being. When he says, I'm going to cause my name to dwell there, what he means is I will dwell there. Uniquely, of course, God is present everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent, always has been. He's, he's present in every square inch of his creation. Lord over all of it. 
But what he's saying is that I will uniquely be present somewhere. In a particular place. Wonderfully present. He will provide for that. And then he calls us to it. Seek this, he says, verse 5. Go there, the end of the verse. This is where I am, and if you want to meet with me and commune with me, come here. Don't march off over there into some other hill, some other mountain, some other copse of trees. I'm going to be somewhere. If you want to meet with me, come to the place I choose. That's where I'll be. That was promised that he would do that. He hinted a little bit at it, and then he sent a king, and he gave him rest from his enemies, and there's hints and hints and hints, hints about where it would be and when it would be. But we don't get the details until we keep reading on through the Old Testament. Now, the Samaritans only accepted the beginning, the, the law. They didn't accept the rest of it, so they were a little confused in this. But if we keep reading, we realize, as most of us do here now, he's talking about the temple. He put his unique presence in pillar of cloud and fire before the people as they walked through the wilderness. And then he, when the ark was built and the tabernacle was built, his unique presence right there in a little cloud above the ark. And then when the building of the temple was erected, in the Holy of Holies, you got temple courts and the building and the outer room and the inner room right in the middle. God uniquely dwelt and His glory filled the place. Present there. He's referring to the temple. So there isn't much mystery there for, for a reader of the whole Old Testament. We, we get what Moses is working towards. There shouldn't be much mystery, but there should be a lot of wonder in the sense of Marvel. It should call out something of wow from us. God has chosen to provide His presence. And then doesn't just let us, but actually commands us to come to it. That's a marvelous thing. He has chosen to be among us. To be available. To be able to be accessed. This is a glorious thing. It is the glory of God in this. That He has made Himself available. And the reason that that's glorious is because that's what we need. Him. It's the thing for which our hearts were made. We were made for it like cups are made to be filled. You look at a cup and you just know something is supposed to go in that. We are made to be filled with something. Him. Our hearts long for it. We're made to be filled and satisfied, not with more finite, short-term, frail, failing, passing, pithy stuff. Not with more money or more prestige, with greater security, with health that lasts a little bit longer. Not with better houses or better sex or better hobbies. Not with larger families that love us. Not with jobs that stimulate us and provide us opportunities to produce change and therefore feel good about ourselves. A lot of that's fine and none of it is filling. 
It isn't. Sometimes you don't realize that until you get it. You win countless NBA championships and then you go play minor league baseball because you're bored. Think about that. I know it's old news, but... You win again and again and again and again and again. Some people live their whole lives striving towards, and you say, you wake up one morning after the third and say, is there anything else? Maybe it's in baseball. That's old, I know. But We are made to fill up our cup and let it run over and then drink to the full of God. We are made to set and then sit at and feast from tables full of the glory of God. To be once His enemies and now seated at His table with Him. Hearts, thirsts quenched. To sing of Him and to satisfy yourself with Him. The joy theme runs this text in three places. In, in 7 and in 12 and in 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Christ, it says, in all that you undertake. Before the Lord your God and rejoicing, tied together. The presence of the Lord is rejoicing. As the psalmist repeatedly testifies, this is from Psalm 16, in His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what He is and He he calls us to it because that's what we need. It's what we're made for. Rejoicing and delight in heart. It happens in His presence. And it is a glory of God. It is part of His glory that He has chosen to make that presence available to us. Because if He didn't, we would still be worshipers. Stuck, worshiping, broken, failing stuff. That does not fill. We are worshipers. There's a bit of Canaanite in every one of us. You don't have ashram poles in your backyard. None of us, I trust, sacrifice our children, even when they are very disobedient. We're appalled by that. Probably most of them were when they started too. But there's a bit of, so we're different, but there's a bit of Canaanite in all of us. We worship over here, we worship over here. That looks good, let's worship there. We were stunned by the grandeur of the mountains. Let's worship there. We go everywhere, we worship fabulous football teams. Favorite celebrities and politicians. We marvel at sunsets and autumn foliage. We are made to exalt something bigger than us. You cannot look at the mountains ablaze with fall colors and not say to the guy in the seat next to you, isn't that cool? You can't, say, you can't not say that. It's in us. We're made like that. And if He did not draw near with His presence, we would be stuck trying to fill our hearts with garbage in comparison. I love mountain grandeur. I am really keen on people and all kinds of stuff in this world. But comparatively, Paul says it is rubbish. Dung. And we'd be stuck with that only if in glory, in goodness, in grace, he did not say, I will choose to make myself available. Somewhere, not everywhere you choose, somewhere 
So don't get hung up on the restricted nature of it. See the glory of the fact that he has chosen somewhere. And then says, come. Seek it. He has chosen to provide and then call us to his presence. Not a place of our choosing, but a place of his. And so we must thank him for it and then seek him where he has chosen to be. And that's what brings us to the second observation. He has graciously made Himself available. He has chosen to dwell in a place and command us and welcome His people to come there. So the second observation, embrace God's gift of His presence by seeking and embracing Jesus. Embrace God's gift of His presence by seeking and embracing Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is not mentioned directly in this text. And if you read only Deuteronomy 12, all you're left with is what I've just talked about. There's, there's a place where His presence will be, and we're commanded to come to it. You don't have anything more. So if you keep reading on through the Old Testament, you find out, okay, He means a temple. And so you go before the Lord, and you stand there at the temple in His presence, and what happens... Suddenly, that you're denied access to His presence. The message is, come, 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 come. Stop. That's far enough. The presence of God is over there. This is far enough for you. And at that right there, a whole bunch of, of, of rather rich imagery springs up. You get the sacrificial system. You get the, the priests you get the, the separation of the, the curtain from the place where people can come and the holy place where God dwells and people can't. You, you get a lot of ideas and imagery there, all of which works out in the New Testament plugging into Jesus. He's the priests. He's the sacrifice. He's the one who tears the curtain. He's the one who welcomes you in. But what I'm emphasizing here this morning is that the whole big thing of the temple itself, that's also connected to Jesus. In that He is the place where people and God connect. He's going to pick a place, says verse 5, to put His name and make His habitation there. The place that He will dwell And then you can look to the New Testament, Colossians 1.19 or 2 verse 9. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Where does God dwell? Where is the name of God, Yahweh? That guy right there, Jesus. In that human being, bodily, right there dwells the fullness of God. Not a sliver of Him. Not some kind of, a little bit of His ways or some of His values. The fullness of deity. All that God is, is right there in that guy. Jesus. Fully God and fully man, both. He's the place where God and man meet. 
In the place where God and other men and women and boys and girls can meet. Which is why he can then call himself the temple, like he does in John chapter 2. He goes into John, he goes into the temple in John 2 and sees all the corruption there, chases everybody out and then says something that people misunderstood at first. Destroy this temple and I in three days will raise it up again. And they thought he was talking about the building and thought he was nuts. It took him decades to build that place. He actually was talking about himself. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. What he's referring to is the destruction of the place where God and men meet on the cross and the raising up of that place intact and whole so that God and men can again meet in the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm a much better temple than this one. You can actually meet God in me because what's going to happen at the cross We must embrace God's gift of His presence, not by going to some temple somewhere, but by going to Jesus. By seeking and embracing Jesus. And some of us here need to do that for the first time in your life. Because you do not know, you do not have access to the presence of God. You're still stuck in the temple imagery of come, 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 stop. Because what what stops you, what keeps you away from the presence of God is your sin. That room where God's presence uniquely was was called the Holy of Holies because God is holy, pure, perfect, sinless, completely righteous. Any number of ways you could describe that means without sin and cannot welcome into His presence those who cling to their sin. Stop and stay out. But that access is provided also by Jesus. That's what's going on at the cross. When He dies on the cross and pours out His lifeblood, when the text alluded to the fact that the life is in the blood, blood in itself is insignificant except for that it represents life. He doesn't just shed some blood, a crown pressed on his head and he bleeds a little bit, or sweats drops of blood in the garden. That's not what we're talking about. It's the shedding of blood, the giving up of life. When he dies on the cross and gives up his life, what he's doing there is paying the penalty due to everybody who sins, which is all of us. He pays a penalty. He satisfies the wrath of God that is justly, rightfully falling on individual human beings who sin. When He dies to pay that penalty, you can be forgiven and have sin removed off of you and therefore there's nothing to keep you away from God and He'll welcome you in. Or you can say, No, I don't want any part of that. And he'll say, very well, stay out. That path keeps you out of the presence of God here, now, and forever, and ever, and ever. It keeps you under the anger of God. It does not allow you to experience the joy that is found in His presence. So some of us need to think about I have not embraced, I have not sought Him in Jesus. I I seek Him all the time on every mountain and hill. But I have not sought Him in Jesus alone. 
That's the only way you can get to Him. Embrace, come to Jesus. Trust in His cross to pay your sin penalty. And He'll remove the barrier and welcome you in and you'll know joy. You'll be forgiven, cleansed forever. So so come to Him. It's not hard, but it's impossible. It's one of those things that's not hard, but impossible. The reason that you don't want to come to Him is that it's impossible because your heart is set against Him. You may not think like that, but your heart is set on your own ways. And it's, and it's virtually impossible to break that grip. So it's arguing with you. Don't do that. That's, that's crazy. Be your own person. Seek Him wherever you want. It's hard. But Christ will break that hold on you. May He do it in your life right now. May He open your eyes right now and cause you to see the foolishness and the emptiness of all that you've lived for. And to see the hope of forgiveness and glory and joy in Jesus alone. May He open your eyes to see that right now. And if He does, you'll see this is not hard at all. It's easy. I trust you. Seek Him. Come to Jesus. Right now. But I know that most of us have, and if you're thinking this through, there should be something kind of tripping in your mind. Because you're talking about, Steve, you're talking about, the text is talking about coming in before the Lord and rejoicing. And as I work this through, the the glory of, of the gospel, I'm just talking about... Is, you're held away from Him, but then, but then the way is opened up and you can come in. And so you're a Christian. You're thinking, so I'm in His presence. And the glory of it is I don't have to go to some building. I don't have to sit in some gym or some sanctuary. I walk around with the presence of God. That is a marvelous thing. And potentially a confusing thing because you don't know joy. Maybe sometimes, but not consistently. So there should be, I'm trying to, I want to raise a disconnect in your mind. I reside in the presence of God and I don't know joy. What's the problem there? Because there is a problem. The text talks about rejoicing in His presence. And I'm in His presence and I'm not rejoicing. What's the problem there? This is a question that should be a significant one for you. It is, it is for me. I want what verse 7 talks about. I want to eat, that is to rejoice. It's a worship. And rejoice in His presence in everything that I undertake, conscious of His blessing on my life. Verse 18 says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. I want to rejoice before the Lord in all that I undertake. I I imagine that you do too. I sure hope you do. God wants you to. Other people are watching to see if you do. It's significant. It should be a significant question for you. And I want to experience that, not just talk about it. I think all of us would affirm, through the Spirit, love, joy, don't have to go very far on the list. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so I should be joyful. 
And we all would affirm that, no, we don't just worship God here on 1030 on Sunday morning. No, we're not just in his presence only here in this room, in this building. Of course, he's with us everywhere. He lives inside of us and we should know joy. We all would affirm that I want to do more than give mental assent to doctrine. I want to experience it. I think you do, too. I hope you do, too. So Christ in me, everywhere I go, in all that I undertake, when I go to the store, when I rake leaves, when I go to school, when I do my homework, when I parent my kids, Christ is in me, and in all the things I undertake, I should be rejoicing before the Lord. Why not? I'm going to have more to say about this next week, but I do have something to say about it this week. I'm going to try to get at it through a story. Now, probably 35 or 40 of us have heard this story before because it's part of the uh, Steve Timmis video that we watched at the congregational meeting last Saturday. We're talking about gospel communities and how communities of people are living for about for and about the gospel are critical in church. And we're moving in that direction. And if you don't know what that is, you need to. Our community groups this afternoon are not about meetings, they're about networks of relationships. And in that context, the story came up. I'm going to cut some of the details out to make it a little more brief. He explains that he says in his terms, I get eye ulcers. He says, I I tend to get ulcers on my eye, and they're very painful. And one day I was going to a, a prayer meeting for our little gospel community, and I thought, I'll share a prayer request. I want people to pray that I don't get an eye ulcer. Because they're painful. And so he shares that, and somebody says, I'll pray for that. And this person prays, Lord, help Steve not to get an eye ulcer. We know they're very painful. They, you know, they're, they're not, not much fun, so help him to not get one. But, Lord, if you choose to give him an eye ulcer, help him to not be grumpy about it. My connection to joy right there. Help, help him to not get grumpy about it, because we know, because we know Steve, that he tends to get grumpy when he gets the eye ulcer. Help him to believe the gospel, Lord. Help him to model for us, Lord, so in prayer, what it looks like for a Christian to suffer, setting his heart on the hope that is everlasting and is not dependent on eye ulcers coming or going. And therefore, Lord, help him to not be grumpy. And he says, I was very upset by that prayer. But I did get an eye ulcer, and you can be sure I remembered that prayer every day. And God used that to help me to believe the gospel and to fight against grumpiness or to fight for joy amidst a difficult, painful circumstance, which happens to me with some regularity, he says. That guy, he lives constantly in the presence of God. Christ indwells him. He's right there with him. But he, he lives before him sort of like this. I'll say a father because I am one. But like a parent or a father lives with his kids reading the newspaper. See the image? I'm reading the newspaper. Junior's over there saying, Dad, Dad, guess what happened to me today? Uh-huh, what happened? 
Well, uh, well, at school there was this guy who, uh huh. Am I aware of Junior's presence? Sure, of course. Do I hear Junior's comments in some sense? If he were to say, what did I just say? I could probably give most of the words back, but I'm reading the paper. Waiting for Junior to get done so that I can give my complete attention to what I'm really trying to focus on. The paper. So in this case, Junior's God. We're in the presence of God reading the paper. We, We know He's there. We... We get some of what he says, but our attention is on the details of the world. The events that are going on moment by moment in my city and in my life. The newest, latest gadget, the the recent sports event. And those are the things that I think are actually going to feed my heart and give me life, which is why I give my attention to them. There what I'm looking to fill me up. There's where I'm seeking my joy. It's faulty. It doesn't. It doesn't fill. Even if it is fine, it doesn't fill. And what I need to do is, God, help me to believe the gospel and fight against grumpiness and depression, sorrow, whatever's going on. I am not, I am not saying, let me say this very clearly. I am arguing that there is no reason whatsoever to live without joy. But I am not arguing for, oh, good news, my loved one just died, that was wonderful. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, oh, we should say, oh, good news. The gospel, good news, the gospel is true even when my loved one just died. God, help me to believe the gospel and not be grumpy, not to sorrow as one who has no hope, but to believe the gospel that my loved one who just died in the Lord is now rejoicing in His very presence. And I have a God who is for me, not against me, but for me in radical ways who does all things from grace for me, who looks on me in delight and there is no condemnation on me whatsoever, help me to believe the gospel, Lord. And if I believe the gospel, if I see in all that I undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you, if I see the blessing of the Lord in all that I undertake, how would I not rejoice? The reason that you don't rejoice though Christ lives in you that you're not seeking Him. He's there, beside you, while you seek something else. What we need then, is God to help us believe, and to see, and to seek, and we need other people to pray those sorts of prayers for us, and have those sorts of conversations with us. Say, brother, sister, even though I know it's going to irritate you for a moment, I'm going to do you good, bless you, and love you by reminding you, you tend to get grumpy in these situations. In other words, you tend to take your eyes off of Christ and the Gospel, focus on them, try to live on them, and they're not going to satisfy you, so you're going to be frustrated. You kind of have a pattern here with this. Watch out for that. We need other people to say those things to us, even though it will surely irritate, if you're like me, it will surely irritate you at the moment. It will bless you. 
Joy is found before the Lord in His presence. And it is possible for Him to be right here and us to look right over top of Him and miss Him. Even as Christians. May God give grace to us to see Him. And may He give grace to us to give us other people who will help us to see Him and to set our minds and hearts on Him. To see, as we're seated at the table in covenant fellowship with Him, oh, the gospel is removed. All grief between us. It's removed every grievance, every, every issue between me and God has been removed because of the gospel. We sit at table and eat together. Once enemies, now reconciled, as the song said. And we rejoice together. Give me eyes to see that. And give me eyes to see how in all of my life your blessing rests on me as I stand in grace. Give me eyes to see that, Lord, that I might rejoice. In Christ, He has done so much for you, Christian. So seek Him there in Christ. Whether we're Christians or not, the message is the same. We apply it a little bit differently, but the message is the same, that we must embrace God's gift of His presence by seeking and embracing Jesus. I have more to say about that next week, particularly about the Holy Spirit's role in that. But right now, you can come to Him. Tomorrow at 3.05 p.m., you can come to Him. He lives in you if you're a Christian. So come, seek Him. Let me pray. God, would You give grace to us, Your people, to recognize the great gift You have given us of Your presence in Christ and then to seek Him, therefore, our joy. To not be satisfied, joyless. Give grace to us to be attentive to our joylessness. Give grace to us to help us understand what our joylessness says about our focus. Give grace to us to be people who will rejoice even while sorrowing and can rest in You in hope amidst tears. That is hard, Lord. Would You give grace to us? Some of my brothers and sisters here are in that very place. Would You give grace to them for that? And Lord, some here don't know You at all. Would You open their eyes, melt their hearts, and cause them to surrender? Give life in Christ, I pray, Father, for your glory and for the good of this people here in this room. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.